0: Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, teach us what it is that we are to believe and to do through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, good to be with you this morning. Uh, Pastor Brzezik is away. um, And uh, he's been talking about death and dying and that prospect. Okay, So I thought I'd kind of follow up on that a little bit and uh, talk about the Christian funeral because it's not something we often want to talk about but we must okay there is certainly something definite about dying it is a transition we would say for christians i like to think that our sentences at some point have to have a period at the end hmm? i was once uh, gi- i was a- once asking a fellow uh, person when I was in New York on, on our at the college there uh, from the English Department if she could give me a recommendation something she liked to read and she gave me a recommendation and uh, uh, it was a uh, book by a John Updike and uh, I loved the novel except there was one sentence that went on for two and a half pages <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if that's typical of his works okay <laughs> uh, but there was something unsettling about that okay we want a song that has an ending to it. We want to hear a piece of music. Uh, one of my favorites is Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, okay? He, uh, he wrote that sort of uh, in his own little way of protesting against the communist regime in the Soviet Union. Uh, he had his fourth symphony all ready to go, but the censors he knew wouldn't, it, it wouldn't fly. And so he kept that under wraps for several decades. He ends his Fifth Symphony, you expect a symphony to end with a ta-da at the end. You know when it's ending. He drags that out forever. You know it's there. And you're just hanging, hanging, hanging for minutes. And finally, oh, just a little bit more, and then then, then again. Okay. We, we need that sense of ending. Okay. We need that ta-da. How, then, do we describe eternity? Hmm. Give you two examples here. And I think in my opinion, as far as the things I've read, these are the two best endings to works of literature that I've come across. One is by St. Augustine, his conclusion to the city of God. That city shall have no greater joy than the celebration of the grace of Christ who redeemed us by his blood. There shall be accomplished the words of the Psalm, be still and know that I am God. And when we are restored by him and perfected with greater grace, we shall have eternal leisure to see that he is God. And know a Sabbath that shall be brought to a close, not by an evening, but by the Lord's day, as an eighth and eternal day, consecrated by the resurrection of Christ and prefiguring the eternal repose, not only of the spirit, but also of the body. There we shall rest and see, see and love, love and praise. This is what shall be in the end without end. For what other end do we propose to ourselves than to attain to the kingdom of which there is no end? I think I have now by God's help discharged my obligation in writing this large work that those who think I have said too little or those who think I've said too much Forgive me. And let those who think I have said just enough, join me in giving thanks to God. Amen. Just before that, however, he also took up the issue of in eternity, will we have any sense of our past? Will we remember? And he says, yes, we must, or we wouldn't have any sense of the mercy of God. We say in the creed, for us and our salvation, Christ became incarnate. Christ forever will have the wounds that will never be forgotten. So yes, eternal rest, but eternal rest in the mercy of God, which certainly must remain a mystery because we have not experienced the fullness of what all of that is. C.S. Lewis uh, has another great ending. Uh, It's the conclusion to his Chronicles of Narnia, the very end of the last battle. Aslan no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I like that. Okay. I'm going to talk a little bit about the Christian funeral this morning. My basic question is, why do we even have a funeral? There is what I think a rather disturbing trend around these days, even in Christian circles, that goes something like this. I don't want any gloom and doom at my funeral. I want all all to be happy. I want it to be an affirmation of life. That's not biblical because, We all experience loss and pain when a loved one dies, and we can't sweep that under the rug. We have to address that straight on with the same gospel that we proclaim, you know, what happens to our loved one, we have to then preach to ourselves too, okay? And so we have to take all of that as part of one thing. So I'm I'm gonna say, make the claim here this morning that the Christian funeral must accomplish at least three things. One, it has to allow space for godly lamentation and grieving in the face of loss. And we'll see how the Bible itself leads us in that direction. Two, we have to affirm the destiny of the deceased in Christ. We dare not forget the person in the casket. Okay, we have to have a clear understanding of what Christ has done for him or her. If that isn't accomplished, why are we here? And then number three, apply the comfort of the gospel. I like to use Pastor Brugic's phrase here, the touch of Jesus to those living with loss and pain, because it is really tough, okay? It's tough even among very firm and lifelong Christians, Lutheran Christians. Um, I was a parish pastor for 24 years, uh, 16 of which in Lexington, Kentucky. I remember one of our faithful members served as an elder in the congregation, you know, an office in the church, you you name it. Uh, His wife died and he didn't want to come back to church. Not because he didn't believe, just because he didn't want to answer the questions. How are you doing? All that kind of thing was, and it just brought up all those memories. It was very, very tough, very tough. Pastor Brusick has also been telling you, get to church, get to church. So that's part of our struggle, okay? You know, God will get us through this. God will get us through this. Okay. And if you have any responses to anything I say, don't, you know, be afraid to raise your hand or, and so forth. Okay. So first, allow space for godly lamentation and grieving in the face of loss. Uh, the, the, the scriptures take very seriously and promote the lamentation. A psalm that's been used at Christian funerals from ancient times, Psalm 130, which begins, Out of the depths I have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. It's a plea to God, okay? I'm crying out of the depths. And of course, Jesus on the cross quotes the first verse of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It shows up in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel. And uh, in both cases, I I would argue, the reason the evangelist gives us those words of Jesus that he said on the cross, Jesus may have said a a whole lot of other things, okay, uh, that the evangelists do not record, but he gives us those words because that's exactly what the readers, particularly of Mark's gospel, are feeling at that moment. Mark's readers are undergoing persecution. They're getting the rap on the door in the middle of the night saying you'll never see your friends again, your relatives again, your wife again, your kids again. You're, you're going to be dying. Okay? Can they pray that prayer? My God, oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By giving us those words of Jesus from the psalm on the cross, Mark is saying, yes, you can say that prayer okay? in a godly manner, even as Jesus did. Okay. So... Uh, there is a actual form of lament. It's a very structured form, at least uh, from a literary uh, perspective, that we find throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. But you know, there's a, there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations, right? The Lamentations of Jeremiah. So not just one little poem, but we've got a whole book of lamentations. A, a Hebrew lament uh, will begin with an address to God. You know, either some name or God, or simply as Psalm 22 does, my God, my God, okay? But, but notice it is my God, my God, why have you done this? Not some God in general, but the one I have known all along, okay? Could be some other name or title of God, just as we do in the prayer of the church, right? You know, we give a particular name or attribute of God, and then come with our petition that somehow matches that, right? That's a very good practice, okay? So you got the address, and then you've got the complaint. God doesn't mind hearing our complaints. The classic one is, why have you forsaken me? Or Psalm 44, you have rejected and humiliated us. Then comes the demand for help. Okay, what do you want God to do? Such as, don't be far from me, come quickly to help me. Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? It seems as if God is sleeping, sometimes as, as a, Take you on some of this stuff. God does give the silent treatment. Hmm? He did to Jesus on the cross. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there, there's no answer there. Jesus is asking the question, but he's getting no reply. Okay. And God will do that sometimes. I'll take you into some, a couple of hymn verses that assert that. Okay. Uh, but why should God help me? That's the the turning point then in, in the lament. So it's not just a cry of despair, where are you kind of thing, but our fathers trusted in you and you rescued them. Because you did that, help me now. Or as simple as Psalm 22, you brought me out of the womb. And then it concludes with a vow to praise God answer my prayer, and I will do this, that, and the other thing. Jacob did that. The, the Old Testament is filled with vows, okay? Um, none of which is really like the vows we are aware of, like a confirmation vow and marriage vow. There's, there's different things, okay? Um, Jacob, at the, when, and the vision of the ladder to heaven, as he's running away from, from Esau, he says, God, bring me back to this place, and uh, my vows, I'll give you 10%. Okay, okay, all right. He did, by the way, he fulfilled his vows. Okay, um, so a, a, a good example where all this comes together is Psalm 13, got at the bottom of your page. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy exalt over me? Then the demand for help, so what he wants God to do. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Why should God do that? Because I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation And some psalms are much more explicit on this, what God has done in the past, but I think it's already there. How in the world can he call God his salvation unless God has already done some saving? Right? Uh, So this presupposes a history of God and the individual. And then the vow, I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. This basic form of the lament shows up in the Collects of the church. We say at least two every Sunday morning. There's always the collect of the day, right? Uh, Comes right after the uh, glory in Excelsis, okay, before the first scripture reading. And then after communion, we have a post-communion collect. That one generally remains the same, okay. But these parts are all there. So there's an invocation, some word for God, who we're speaking to, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. Then an acknowledgement, a description of a divine attribute that relates to the petition in the uh, ancient Latin form of these, it's the qui, the who. Then the petition, usually very terse, just for one thing. And then the desired result. Okay. And then a Trinitarian conclusion, such usually through Jesus, through Christ our Lord, Okay, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit forever. Um, so here's an example of, of of that in these five parts in a, just a, a collet kind of at random that I chose here. Merciful Father, who has given your only Son as a sacrifice for sinners, grant us grace to receive the fruits of His redeeming work with thanksgiving. That daily we may follow in His way through Jesus Christ our Lord. This can be helpful in shaping your prayers, too, I think. As you craft your own prayers, you sing your own prayers at night, you know. What name are we, I know Pastor Brugic did a a session a couple years ago on on the names of God, right? Um, How many names did he have, 100 or something, 99 names? Um, Shaping it via the, the names of God. Our request, our petition, our aspiration, the intended result. That's certainly true then also of our Lamentations. Uh, so let's take a look at Lament in the, uh, in the Bible. Mourning the dead. Um, we as a culture probably don't do that nearly to the extent like the ancients did. That is a fixed time of mourning. But the closest we come as a nation is to have the flag at half staff for a period of time certainly if a president or former president dies, half staff for 30 days, that's normal stuff. But it's quite biblical as well. So the first example I give here is the uh, at the death of Moses. Uh, Moses, of course, uh, was not allowed to enter into the promised land of Canaan. He saw things uh, by God's grace from afar. We're told he's 120 when he died, his eye undimmed, vigor unabated. The people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. There was a fixed period of time, and then they're over. What do you do during this 30-day period? Nothing. Okay? It is a time of mourning. So life is put on hold here. I I remember back uh, that the uh, assassination of President Kennedy, I remember our country being sort of put on hold for that that period of time. Um, The death of uh, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, and what I'm leaving out here is a long story about Abraham purchasing a piece of land that had a cave in it so he could bury Sarah, which is uh, interesting from a number of respects. In fact, this, this is the first chunk of real estate that Abraham actually owns in the land of Canaan, even though God for years has been saying to your descendants, I will give this land. And the only thing Abraham ever owns is that cave okay give me property among you for a burying place that i may bury my dead out of my sight there's a real strong sense in the uh, uh, particularly in the old testament but new testament as well of uh, proper careful respectful honorable burial the worst thing that could ever happen is to have a grave disturbed and the bones scattered there's an example of that uh, later on in the old testament where that happens as it's it, it, in terms of god's judgment that's the, that's the worst thing that the bones can be scattered okay. my next example here is of uh, jacob jacob is in egypt with his 12 sons he's about to die i am to be gathered to my people and what does he request Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got the GPS down on this one. Okay? Okay. <laughs> do, not leave, do not leave this to chance. Okay? You're going to find that cave and that's where I want to go. Okay. <laughs> There they buried Isaac and Rebekah's wife. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Yes, okay. They're not going to take it back. And you're not going to let them. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. That's how the Old Testament always talks about it, to be gathered to his people. Then Joseph, his favorite son, fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that's how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. The actual burial, funeral rites, and the mourning has to take 30 days, but it took 40 days to get him embalmed. So add tack on the 30 on the end. They're very serious about this stuff. Um, and I would also say as a footnote for this, eventually, of course, Joseph dies. Hmm. And guess what his dying request is? Okay. I want to be buried in that cave. Okay. His coffin stays in Egypt for 400 years, folks. And while the Israelites are in the wilderness for 40 years, they are carrying Joseph's coffin all the way to Canaan to get back to that cave eventually. Crossing the, it crossed the Jordan River under Joshua. Now, very important. What do you do during a period of mourning? Next page, example from the book of Job. You probably know the basic outline of the book of Job. Satan had come to God and said, uh, you know, you got this guy Job, fine upstanding guy, says his prayers. Yeah, good to his kids, does all, everything right. That's because you keep giving him goodies. Let me take the goodies away and we'll see what he's really like. So God says, have Adam, you just can't take his life. After two rounds of taking away stuff and giving him sores all over his body, we get the story here. He's sitting with pieces of broken pottery, scraping himself. His wife says, curse God and die. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Hmm. In all this, Job didn't sin. And then he gets a visit from three friends. Uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They come to show him sympathy and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. And that's the best thing they do in the entire book. When they open their mouths, then it all goes sour, okay? Um, But you see what's happening here, okay? They say nothing. Okay? The best comfort sometimes is just to be with the person. Okay? These are not strangers to Job. They are his friends. Okay? They're sitting with him. Um, sometimes the best thing at a, at a funeral, at a wake, whatever, is just to be with the person that's experienced the lost and show them you're there, show them you care, hug them, okay? rather than try and come up with explanations as to why this happened. Okay, the book of Job is gonna go on for 48 more chapters and Job will never understand why all this stuff happened. Only we, the reader, know the behind the scenes stuff between God and Satan, okay. Job never does, okay. Um, At the end, he simply has to come to the conclusion and, and say, you know, God is God and I'm willing to let God be God. And there are things now that we will not understand. Or, as Paul says, now we see as through a glass darkly, only in the life to come will we see face to face and understand as God understands, right? Um, The temptation of uh, Adam and Eve was what? To be like God and know good and evil. It's a Hebrew way of talking, of saying good, evil, alpha, omega, beginning, end, and everything in between. God created the heavens and the earth and everything else in between. You know? so it's hmm. We can't handle knowing everything because we're mortals. Okay? we have to, you know, come to that realization. Um, I was thinking that Adam and Eve in the, in the in the Garden of Eden, you know, the, uh, the Garden of Eden was not paradise. We tend to think of it that way. But right from the start, God had given a command, did he not? Don't eat of that one tree, or what will happen? We'll die. I wouldn't call knowing about the possibility of dying as paradise. No. No. There's a, thus there's a line from the historic Easter Vigil. The one in LSB shortens things considerably. There's a terrific line in there that, and it's kind of odd at the same time, that says of uh, what happens in the Garden of Eden, oh, happy fault of Adam that brought about so great a savior. Oh, happy fault. That begins the process of of reversing the situation where there's any kind of threat hanging over us. That's gone in Jesus now. It's gone, it's gone. Thus, I like to say, we get more than Adam and Eve lost, which is, I think, think terrific. Look at the next little quote here. As God is uh, making plans here to lead the Israelites out of Egypt after they'd been there for over 400 years, this is the uh, line out of the, uh, the encounter between God and Moses at the burning bush in this amazing uh, statement by God here to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Now that's not an intellectual knowledge. Of course, God knows everything, you know, in the headstand. That means he experiences them. Okay? In the same way that it says, uh, in Bible speak, uh, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Well, we know what they did, okay? Uh, so it's, it's um, so it's experience is what's involved. Uh, this is a an incredible thing here uh, in Christianity that God feels and knows our sufferings. Okay. And we see in the book of Romans by Paul, Paul says, of course, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That might take something out of our day to do, Spend time weeping with those who weep rather than give easy uh, answers. Sometimes their words are not sufficient. Paul himself admits that when he says that the spirit prays within us with sighs too deep for words because we can't always find the words. This also means that uh, we stand back and we say that there are greater purposes of God, as as Job would have to come to that conclusion too. But I see a contrast here uh, also between perhaps two different worlds of thinking. And I'll give you examples here of two monuments in New York. Uh, Before coming here, I I taught at our then sister school in Bronxville, New York. leads you to two monuments. Uh, One is the main monument at uh, Columbus Circle. It's kind of the de facto entrance to uh, Central Park. And it was uh, erected in 1913 uh, in remembrance of those who died in the Spanish-American War, particularly on the battleship Maine, which started the whole thing. It was a terrorist attack and scholars debate the ins and outs of it all, or whether the Spanish-American War was even a just war. I'll leave that all aside. It was uh, American sailors perished on the USS Maine in Havana Harbor. That much is certain. This monument is erected to celebrate that. And I give you the quote that is on the back side of the monument to the free men who died in the war with Spain that others might be free. Hmm, what's that saying? What claim is being made there? Thinking about our future. And, and uh, it's thinking about the future and thus there's a, there's a reason behind things Okay. That the death of some brought about a greater, a, a great something greater yet to come. Okay, I think this does come out of a, a general Christian worldview. There's nothing, there's nothing particularly religious or Christian about the inscription, but it comes from a different perspective that there are bigger causes and and things out there. I'd like you to contrast that with. Uh, probably the more famous one these days, and that's the uh, 9/11 memorial in Lower Manhattan. Been there many, many times. Saw the whole thing <coughs> being constructed, and, and the cleanup, and all, and all of that kind of kind of thing. Give you two quotes here. Uh, as as you may or may not know, uh, the twin towers, uh, the footprint of the twin towers, were kept on the on the ground. Okay, the exact dimensions, and there are two huge uh, square, as you see in the pictures, um, waterfalls. Going down. And here's the explanation of it. So, first from the chairman of the Memorial Foundation. Both the waterfalls and the name panels will be back lit at night, giving them a glow that will reinforce the, that the memorial is about the absence of the 2,982 people that were lost. In other words, that the memorial is simply to remind us about lives lost. Then from the architect himself. I'm hoping the sound of the water will create a sense of place and being somewhat buffeted from the city beyond while still being firmly within it, creating an environment that is conducive to contemplation in the middle of the city. It certainly accomplishes that. It is a very quiet, respectful place. One of the things I wanted the water and the design to do is to mark a continuous sense of absence. These voids, even though water falls into them, never fill up. They always remain empty. And that was very important to me. In other words, this is showing us lives gone down the drain. It's a very different kind of perspective, very different kind of world view. Okay? That there's any purpose behind these lives that were lost. Okay? just Lives forever down the drain. New Testament stuff, how do, uh, how do people express their grief? Well, let's take a look at Jesus. When Jesus came to Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Jesus actually took his time getting there. Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Having space to grieve is important. It was important for our Lord. Okay? And the folks, got the message, see how he loved him. Okay. Of course, Jesus will go on to raise Lazarus, but we shouldn't fast forward to that point so quickly. Okay? That little verse is the shortest in the Bible, of course, that Jesus wept. Okay? Shows not only that he's human, but that what God had said to Moses still remains. I know their sufferings. Okay. I know their sufferings. Then uh, the incident out of the book of Acts here, um, where uh, Peter raises Tabitha to life. Um. So there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which also means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in upper room. Going through the proper burial practices. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there sent two men saying, come to us without delay. Peter rose and went. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Then Peter put them out and prayed and said, Tabitha, arise. But all the normal stuff continues. Okay, even though we should not take the Peter putting them out of the womb uh, as sort of a down putting their mourning. Okay, he wants clear space to pray. Okay, he wants to focus on what God's will here might might be. But all the other trappings must remain. Okay, and then he presents her alive. In terms of hymns, um, two jump out at me that pick up this theme of lamentation and godly grieving, letting God know our cries. Uh, One is from the time of Luther. I'm giving you the second stanza here. It's it's rarely sung anymore. Um, In the midst of death's dark veil, powers of hell or take us. Who will help when they assail? Who secure will make us? Thou only Lord, thou only. Thy heart is moved with tenderness, pities us in our distress. And that that line, thy heart is moved with tenderness, pities us in our distress, can only be said because we know the track record that God has had with us. We know the gospel story. Yet at the same time, who will help, Holy and righteous God, holy and mighty God, holy and all merciful savior. Save us, lest we perish. The other one comes from a a, a hymn by Paul Gerhardt in the Lutheran hymnal, which is where I'm taking this from. uh, The title is commit whatever grieves thee. I think in LSB, it is entrust thy days and burdens is a completely new translation. And uh, they left out the two verses I quote here which I think are really important because this is the Lutheran theology of the cross. Uh, Paul Gerhardt often referred to as the poet laureate of Lutheranism. uh, You know many of his hymns, uh, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, one of his more famous. Um, uh, He he was a pastor in in Germany in the 1600s. Uh, On on one occasion, uh, a plague swept through uh, his town and In one year, he had 1,000 funerals to perform. That's hard to do, okay? I don't know how he got through that, okay? So listen to his words here. And this is unique in all of hymnody. Talking of God here. A while his consolation he may to thee deny, and seem as though in trial he far from thee would fly a wild distress and anguish may compass thee around, nor to thy supplication an answering voice be found. In other words, this is what I said before. It's God sometimes gives us the silent treatment, as he did his son. If we share in the life and death of Jesus through our baptism, then we may experience some of what Christ experienced too, as did the man we remember today, St. James, who was thrown over the temple wall and brutally clubbed to death but then gerhardt goes on if thou perseverest thou shalt deliverance find behold all unexpected he will thy soul unbind and from the heavy burden thy heart will soon set free and thou wilt see a blessing see the blessing he had in mind for thee so this takes as, as paul would say the patience and comfort of god's word or it, I guess that's not from Paul, that's from a collect, okay? <laughs> Patience and comfort of, of thy word. Okay? Um, or as Pastor Brugic says, go to church, okay? <laughs> uh, let, let the word work on you, okay? Yes, it will take a while in some cases. It will take a while, okay? Because, because your love was great. As they said of Jesus, see how much they loved him, okay? Yeah. Uh, And I think of the Beatitudes, this is my translation here, so it may sound a little unfamiliar. Uh, But that second one, the bearers of grief are blessed. God's comfort is coming their way. Uh, At the time of grief, we don't understand that, however. And this can be the bearers of grief, the one who is grieving or the one who is carrying somebody else's grief. That's actually the way Luther takes it when he translates it into German in his, in his German translation. The, um, the one who is bearing another person's grief. You're like Job's friend sitting with him, okay? Comforting in that kind of way. Um, we are to know that in that we are indeed blessed, and that God's comfort will come in his way, in his time. Okay. So. It's important that we have space for godly lamentation. Going on, we must also affirm the destiny of the deceased in Christ. I like this quote here from Fat and Meserly. The deceased should not be forgotten at the time of the funeral, and it's not enough to assume that the funeral is for the living. A funeral, among other things, ritualizes the situation of death and the bereavement of the family and congregation. In the burial service, we say what we would have said at the moment of death, had we been present. Okay. So we dare not leave a free funeral wondering about what's happening to our loved one who was baptized and nourished in Christ for his or her entire life. Okay. We have to say very clearly you know where this person is and, uh, and on that scriptures and sometimes scripture is very clear and sometimes it doesn't always answer our questions It says this of the deceased blessed are the dead who die in the lord they rest from their labors their deeds follow them or paul none of us lives to himself none of us dies to himself if we live we live to the lord if we die we die to the lord so then whether we live or whether we die we are the lords for to this end christ died and lived again that he might be lord both of the dead and of the living next quote from paul in philippians paul is sort of struggling uh you know i'd i'd really like to be with jesus he says uh, so he's struggling he says i'm torn which i choose i don't know i long to depart and be with christ because that's far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you so i think that's what god will have me do just stay working here but we do have paul's words here that hmm. He knows that at one point he will depart and be with Christ. That being with Christ, however, is always you as a person. Uh, Which is, it's not you the soul, not you the body, but you the person. The only person I'm looking at is both soul and body right now. That's not the Greek view. (laughs) And this is is the tough one, because... Most folks think like Greeks and Romans. For the Greeks and Romans, the goal of everything is to be finally freed from your body, and that your soul go on living in the afterworld. Okay. Well, what's the most important day on the Christian calendar? I hope you'll say Easter. Okay. 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 It's the celebration of the resurrection. Okay. As important as Good Friday is, we do not observe Good Friday from the angle of Jesus dies on the cross and his soul goes back to heaven. End of story. Why do we need the resurrection? We absolutely do, because we've got a person, Jesus, who is fully human and yet has a human soul as well. And the two cannot be separated or you've got two different people. And that the scriptures just will not do. Take a look at the uh, middle paragraph here. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, meaning our body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. He's using metaphors all over the place here. What does he mean not be found naked? body less, a naked soul. That's abhorrent to Paul. Paul cannot think of a human being that doesn't have a body and a soul. If you don't have a body, you're not human anymore, then you're like an angel, okay? The two are always together, okay? Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So uh, look at Luther here. What does the word today means? It's true that souls here fear fear and see after death, but how this occurs, we don't understand. Abraham lives, God is the God of the living. Now, if one should say that Abraham's soul lives with God, but his body is dead, this distinction is rubbish. I will attack it. One must say the whole Abraham, the whole man lives. The other way you tear off part of Abraham and say it lives. This is the way the philosophers speak. Afterward, the soul departed from its domicile, etc. He's quoting the Greeks. Like Plato, that would be a silly soul if it were in heaven and desired its body, okay? On the subject of what the dead in Christ experience, hmm, all we've, we've got what Paul says. He knows he will depart and be with Christ, and can that be bad? No, that's glorious, that's, that's glorious, okay? Um, I'd flip over in the interest of time, which we're all just over anyway. Okay. Uh, got to go to part three. Okay. So we have to be very firm that the destiny of the deceased and that there is a resurrection of the dead at the end. Paul always wants to go to resurrection. Okay. From 2 Corinthians blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ the father of mercies and the god of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by god for as we share abundantly in christ's suffering so christ through christ we share abundantly in comfort too so the same proclamation of god's grace and mercy given to the deceased in baptism the lord's supper coming to church, receiving the means of grace, being surrounded by Christian people, loving them, praying for them, that same grace is there for those who are grieving as well. And that must be applied in a funeral as well. That we can thus, in the end, in God's good time, be able to bank on and affirm God's promises. I think of the Psalm 23, Take a look at Jeremiah 32 sometime. Jeremiah is sitting in jail as the Babylonian army is laying siege to Jerusalem. And he says, I want to buy a chunk of land, (laughs) which he'll never see again. He, will never, he never sets eyes on that. But so again, a long chapter, just like buying the cave. This is a, it's a long section uh, of, of the, all the witnesses he gets, the, the exact legal documents, the deeds, the stamped, approved, everything, all the signatures on there and everything to, to make this official. He's banking on the future. It's a, it's a way of saying, yeah, we, God will get us through this kind of thing. God does actually hear our prayers. And then that... Uh, that great uh, concluding passage there, which is often and rightly so uh, said at funerals, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Hmm. Yeah, he will. And nothing can stop us from God's love getting to us. But we need to keep saying it over and over. Mm -hmm. All right.